Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. We hope you enjoyed our last episode about Miss Clara Conway. I think she's been my favorite subject so far. I may be a little biased given my personality, but I love someone who fights for equality, even if it's a subtle fight. And when I was thinking about what to write about next, I couldn't help taking inspiration from that story and also from what's going on in the country right now with the election process. The election process is a difficult thing to escape right now. It really is. (laughs) Uh, So this is my thought process since sometimes I don't take people along the trip in my head. So (laughs) I just expect them to know what I'm thinking. (laughs) She does that all the time. I do. So here goes. This is what I was thinking about. Uh, how a strong and determined woman that Clara Conway was and what she did for women's education and independence was amazing. And she was a pioneer for the movement of women having a voice and being able to do things for themselves. And then we've been doing a Buffy the Vampire Slayer rewatch. Wait, was Clara Conway a vampire slayer? Maybe. Not sure. Still waiting to hear back from Giles. But that's not where I'm going with this. Stick with me. All right, if you haven't seen Buffy, or if you have and it's been a long time, give it a try again. If you can just get through the first season, it's pretty fantastic. Very late 90s, but still fantastic. And Alan is doing a great job of sitting next to me and not groaning while I watch it. Well, now I'm going to be keeping an eye out for a Clara Conway cameo anyway. (laughs) Uh, Well, anyway, Buffy is a strong woman fighting evil with tenacity and determination never backing down. So that is what made me realize in my homage to everything woman power lately that we have not mentioned the 100-year anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And without Tennessee, the ratification would not have been possible, and who knows when it would have come to pass. Right. And can you imagine living in a time when ladies didn't have a say in the future of their country? It really wasn't that long ago. And it's a really good thing that I was born at this time because I'm fairly certain I would have been arrested at the front lines of some yellow rose clad group of women fighting for the cause because you know me, I'm headstrong a bit, bit. (laughs) and I like to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Who doubt there. Yep. So odds are good. I'd be making in the immortal words of John Lewis, some good trouble. (laughs) So it was August 18th, 1920, and America had only secured 35 states that were for ratifying the 19th Amendment. Uh, Tennessee was the last state that was going to vote, and it wasn't looking good. They called it the War of the Roses. Um, Danny DeVito was not involved in this. (laughs) But but it was called the War of the Roses uh, with pro-ratifiers, a.k.a. SUFFs. Uh, I guess short for suffragettes. uh, Donning yellow roses and the antis donning red ones. The Suffs were short one vote when a 24-year-old representative, Harry T. Byrne, with a red rose pinned on his lapel and a letter from his mother in his pocket, voted aye in favor of the amendment. His mother, Feb Byrne, had sent him a letter stating, Dear son, hurrah and vote for suffrage and don't keep them in doubt. With lots of love, Mama. Years later, he wrote, I had always believed that women had an inherent right to vote. It was a logical attitude from my standpoint. My mother was a college woman, a student of national and international affairs, who took an interest in all public issues, and she could not vote. Yet the tenant farmers on our farm, some who were illiterate, could vote. 
On that roll call, confronted with the fact that I was going to go on record for time and eternity on the merits of the question, I had to vote for ratification. The 19th Amendment guarantees all American women the right to vote. This included African American women, but unfortunately that part of the fight continued until Jim Crow laws were abolished. Right. Uh, the 19th Amendment reads, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The amendment was first introduced to Congress in 1878, but it was not ratified until 1920. Tennessee became the perfect 36 on August 18, 1920, when it became the last state needed to ratify the amendment. To celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, we're going to look at some of the early Memphians that helped push for suffrage in America. Their hard work and determination helped further the cause and change the future for all women. All right. First on our list are two sisters, Elizabeth Avery Merriweather and her sister-in-law, Lyde Smith Merriweather, shared a home with their husbands on Peabody Avenue. The sisters spent their time together working for the fight for women's rights. Elizabeth and her husband, Minor, were quite progressive for their time. Upon their marriage, they signed a contract agreeing to share and invest equally. And Elizabeth was one of the South's first suffragettes and one of the first to publicly push for suffrage. And she used her own money that she received for maintaining properties to start her own small newspaper, The Tablet, which promoted votes for women in every issue. This paper also voiced its support for equal pay for the sexes and advocated for Miss Clara Conway to be elected to the school board. Elizabeth once rented out the Memphis Theater, the largest in town, to deliver a public speech on women's rights. Over 500 women attended, and the Memphis Appeal wrote an article on how she was a worthy advocate of her sex and that she was met with frequent bursts of applause. So in 1872, after hearing that Susan B. Anthony was arrested after attempting to vote, Elizabeth said that she was going to vote in the next Memphis election, and if she was arrested, she would gladly share a cell with Miss Anthony. And in the next election, she did just that, except that she was not arrested. She felt that was due to her status in the community, while some believed her friends were the ones to accept the ballot, but then they threw it away. And during the 1880s, she began to travel with Susan B. Anthony across the country to advocate for women's voting. In 1883, Elizabeth and her husband and children moved to St. Louis to escape the yellow fever epidemic, but she still continued her campaign for women's rights. While her sister-in-law was away, Lyde took over the leadership reins in Memphis. Lyde also enjoyed putting pen to paper. Uh, She was the editor of a literary journal for genteel women. The Soundings was dedicated to the fallen women and spoke of the inequalities between men and women. In a time when women found it so hard to support themselves, they had to turn to such things as sex work to make money to survive. In an effort to help, she would take sex workers home and train them for other occupations. Also in her writing, she would point fingers at those respectable women who did not help the less fortunate. Lyde helped found the Ella Oliver Refuge, a women's shelter in Memphis. In 1886, the National Women's Suffrage Association hired Lyde to lecture and organize equal rights clubs in Tennessee. She helped influence the editor of the Memphis Appeal to publish its first pro-suffrage editorial on July 29, 1888. It stated that intelligent people realize the injustice of withholding the ballot from women. May 21, 1889, Lyde was elected president of the newly formed Women's Suffrage League in Memphis. 
She eventually became Honorary President for Life of the Tennessee Equal Suffrage Association. In her advocacy, she argued against the classification of women with minors, aliens, paupers, criminals, and idiots, and advocated legal reform that would give women title to their own clothing and earnings, guardianship of their children, and the right to vote. And so, granted, some of those titles are a little outdated, but let's be clear. As far as political rights are concerned, women were on the same level as criminals. Uh, She joined women from several states in 1892 to testify before the House of Representatives committee hearing on women's suffrage. Apparently, her remarks were the only ones the committee members seemed to give attention to. Lyde loved a good petition, and she wrote them often. This one in particular was published with over 500 signatures. The petition read as follows. We, the undersigned women of Tennessee, do and should want the ballot because... 1. Being 21 years old, we object to being classified with minors. 2. Born in America and loyal to her institutions, we protest against being made perpetual aliens. 3. Costing the treasuries of our counties nothing, we protest against acknowledging the male pauper as our superior. 4. Being obedient to law, we protest against the statute which classifies us with the convict and makes the pardoned criminals our political superior. 5. Being sane, we object to being classified with a lunatic. 6. Possessing an average amount of intelligence, we protest against legal classification with the idiot. 7. We taxpayers claim the right to representation. 8. We married women want to own our clothes. 9. We married breadwinners want our own earnings. 10. We mothers want equal partnership with our children. And 11. We educated women want the power to offset the illiterate vote in our state. Miss Lyde passed away in 1913 and Elizabeth in 1917. Although they didn't get to see the outcome of their visions come to pass, they created the strong foundation for those that came after them. Next we have Mary Church Terrell. Mary was the firstborn daughter of Robert Church, a biracial man born to a slave mother and a white plantation owner. Church became a businessman and eventually the South's first African-American millionaire after slavery was abolished. He was intent on his daughter having a quality education, so he sent her to one of the first colleges to admit women, Oberlin College in Ohio. From the start, she was thriving, and her first essay was on why the Constitution should have a 16th Amendment granting suffrage to women. Mary later stated, I cannot recall a time since I first heard the subject discussed, that I did not believe in women's suffrage with all of my heart. After graduating college, she went on to teach at a university and then a high school, where she eventually met her husband, who was working and in school studying to become a lawyer. Her husband had supported her and believed wholeheartedly in women's suffrage. By the 1890s, Mary had founded the Colored Women's League, was appointed to the District of Columbia Board of Educators, the first black woman to hold the position, and was the founding president of the National Association of Colored Women. This association argued that voting rights for black women were inseparable from questions of black men's disenfranchisement and the broader freedom struggle. This club, as well as other African-American women's clubs, had their own brand of suffrage that prioritized racial justice. Terrell argued that the vote was even more essential to African-American women because they were disadvantaged by both their race and their sex, and the vote would be key to achieving civil rights. At a convention in 1890, she spoke, saying, As a colored woman, I hope this association will include a resolution on the injustices of various kinds which colored people are the victims. 
My sisters of the dominant race stand up not only for the oppressed sex, but also the oppressed race. She continued to lecture and pen essays on behalf of suffrage. By 1909, she was one of two women becoming charter members of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. She was also active in the National American Women's Suffrage Association, working closely with Susan B. Anthony and Carrie Chapman Catt. She spoke at the International Congress of Women in Berlin and was the only African-American invited to speak, which she did in German and French, as well as English. She even joined suffragists at the National Women's Party in picketing the White House. This will not be the last you hear about Miss Terrell. She, like Wells Barnett, was a hometown pioneer for social justice. The Church family will have a few episodes dedicated to their legacy. And if you recall from the episode on Ida B. Wells, you'll remember that she was also a pioneer for suffrage, especially for the African-American population. If you've not listened to that episode, please do. You can hear not only about her social justice fight, but also what she did for the suffrage movement. She was an amazing woman who I believe maybe next year is getting a statue on Beale and Forth near uh, where her newspaper office was located. Yeah, I think it's next year. Up next is Elizabeth Lyle Saxon. Mrs. Saxon believed that the key to a woman's future was the ability to vote and have economic opportunities. She was raised by her father because her mother passed away when Elizabeth was just two years old. Her father instilled in her independence and a hatred of oppression. On his deathbed, his last wish was for Elizabeth to never cease working for unfortunate women so long as her life should last. Like many other ladies, Saxon traveled with Susan B. Anthony, speaking passionately and poetically at conventions all over the country. She founded and served as state president of the Tennessee Equal Suffrage Association and vice president of the Women's National Suffrage Association. Saxon split her time between Memphis and New Orleans. She spoke before a Louisiana Constitutional Convention where there was a motion to give women equal voting rights. Her speech was so moving, it was featured in an issue of the New Orleans Times. She earned a national reputation for being a powerful speaker. Saxon's entire adult life was dedicated to the advancement of women and girls. She passed away five years before the 19th Amendment was ratified, but she was cited as being instrumental to the social changes leading up to the amendment's passing. Memphis can proudly boast having the first woman to actively practice law in Tennessee, even before women were allowed to vote. Marion Scudder Griffin was denied the right several times because of her sex, but eventually she prevailed in 1907. She was elected to the Tennessee General Assembly in 1922. She headed the Social Welfare Committee and sponsored legislation benefiting the lives of women and children. She was an active member of the Memphis League of Women Voters, and Griffin never stopped advocating for the advancement of women in the legal sector. Luckily, in Memphis, the suffrage movement had support from the men in government. One such influential man was Joe Hanover, a young lawyer from Memphis. He left his law position and headed to the House of Representatives in an effort to pass women's suffrage. Even as a young child studying the U.S. Constitution, he questioned, why can't mother vote? Hanover, who was also a Jewish immigrant, was extremely patriotic and expressed his love for his country and his treasured belief that the right to vote should be afforded to all citizens. He once said, a mother brings a child into this world but has no say afterward about the future of the child, his education, or rearing. Everything he did as a legislator was to bring social equality. Although billed as an independent, he used his legal knowledge to help properly write bills when the Democrats and Republicans wanted to get them passed. 
Hanover was kind and intelligent, and that won the respect of those with whom he worked. He became the 19th Amendment's floor leader in the House. He fought hard to convince the other legislators to support the suffrage cause, and when he succeeded, he retired from the House and came back to Memphis, founding an influential law firm, never running for office again. There were several organizations that came from the suffrage movement in the U.S. The National Women's Suffrage Association was founded in 1869 by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. It is said that the group opposed the 15th Amendment, but really they wanted to also include the right for women to vote, along with the right for African American men to vote. Stanton stated that by enfranchising almost all men while excluding all women, the amendment would give constitutional authority to the idea that men were superior to women, creating an aristocracy of sex. It also supported other women's rights, such as better education and the ability to file for divorce. The American Women's Suffrage Association was also founded that year, but only focused on the voting aspect of the cause. This became the more popular of groups because they had a more moderate agenda. The two groups merged in 1890 to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Unfortunately, even though there was progress being made, there was also still racism within the ranks. In 1896, this led to a group being formed called the National Association of Colored Women. This group advocated not only for the right for black women to vote, but also other social reforms. They pushed to end Jim Crow law like segregation and for children to have better schools and education. Their motto was, lifting as we climb, meaning that they wanted to uplift and improve the status of African Americans. In 1904, the Equal Suffrage Association was founded in Memphis, but failed due to lack of funds. Just two years later, the Equal Suffrage League was formed, and its members worked together to organize the suffrage movement in Memphis, as well as throughout Tennessee. The organization held parades, rallies, pink teas, and rummage sales. Their efforts helped push the legislature to gradually allow women to have some rights. Women could control property after they married and vote in some election, the presidential election, but not the governor, uh, state legislature, or Congress elections. One of the organizations that had a hand in the suffrage cause was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And I didn't want to leave it out, but I also didn't want to focus a lot of time on it. Many of the suffragettes belonged to this organization. However, the WCTU focused on securing women's participation in the political process as the protectors of the home, rather than the suffragettes' uh, more radical idea of gender equality, which helped legitimize the movement. So by the late 1890s, the group began to distance itself from more feminist groups and once again began focusing mainly on prohibition. So I wanted to throw it out there that it existed, but it had other motives besides voting rights. All right, last but not least, we're going to talk about something new that's happening in celebration of the 100-year anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The newest suffrage monument to grace the state of Tennessee is to be the Memphis Suffrage Monument, debuting hopefully in December of 2020. According to the Tennessee Women's Suffrage Heritage Trail, the monument will be located behind the University of Memphis Law School facing the Mississippi River. The monument will feature 14 steel panels of women marching over 100 years, uh, which will face the law school. Facing the river will be 14 glass and steel panels, six bronze busts on pedestals, and LED lighting. The following individuals will be featured on that monument with busts as well as glass panels. Ida B. Wells, journalist, anti-lynching campaigner, later suffragist, 
Don't forget to listen to our episode on, on Mrs. Wells Barnett if you have not. Uh, Mary Church Terrell, suffragist, champion, champion of racial and gender equality. Marion Griffin, the first woman to practice law in Tennessee, the first woman to be elected to state house. Representative Joe Hanover, House floor leader who kept pro-suffrage votes together, an ally of Carrie Chapman Catt, attorney and humanitarian. Charles Ormond Williams, a nationally known educator who coordinated state ratification efforts, stood by Governor Roberts when he signed ratification papers. Representative Lois DeBerry, first female speaker pro tempore in the Tennessee legislature, 40 years of public service. There will be other etched faces and narratives in the glass as well. Lyde Smith Merriweather, early suffragist who had national recognition. Lulu Collier-Reese, later suffragist in Nashville in the 1920s. Alma H. Law, first woman to serve on Shelby County Quarterly Court, served until her death in 1947. Maxine Smith, civil rights legend, NAACP executive director, and she registered large numbers of women to vote. Minerva Jonikin, the first black female in county commission and city council, ran for city mayor in 1987 and was nationally recognized criminal court clerk. Francis Grant Loring, women's rights and civil rights activist, marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and was a founding member of the Association for Women Attorneys, Metropolitan Interfaith Association. Happy Snowden Jones, founding member of the Panel of American Women, helped avert second sanitation workers' strike, the first donor to this monument, a feminist philanthropist who was the benefactor of the Perfect 36, Tennessee Delivers Woman's Suffrage Book, ebook and audiobook. All right, with that, we'll leave you with a quote from Paula Casey, the co-founder of the Tennessee Women's Suffrage Heritage Trail. All the members of the Shelby County Legislative Delegation supported suffrage, which was huge. The rest of the state was divided. Memphis is the reason the vote passed in Nashville. We need to claim that. It's important for people to know that. So high five, Memphis. I'm always so proud of our city and its accomplishments we've made. And we are not without our scars, but we live up to our grit and grind motto. We do the best that we can with what we have, and we do it well. And we don't give up, and we don't quit, even if the odds are stacked against us. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I got a little passionate about our city there for a minute, no, but okay. uh, we, are, we are awesome, and we do great things. So we should be very proud of ourselves that Memphis is the reason that the 19th amendment got passed. So right. there you go. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the story we've unearthed. Don't forget to check our next episode out in two weeks. You can find us on your favorite podcast listening app. Also check out our website at unearthmemphis.com. Follow us on Instagram at unearth, unearth Memphis, Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth 901, Twitter at unearth 901, or drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. Uh, we love to hear from everybody. Questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, or just chatter is appreciated and enjoyed. Yes, very much. We love to hear from people. All right, here's our disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can, but there is always a possibility some of these statements are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the information so that we're not putting out any untrue info. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have any things to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles we used and book titles, etc. to gather information. 
right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton.